Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Terrence Tilly, Professor of Theology at Fordham University, giving a talk entitled Academic Freedom, Divine Revelation, and the Catholic University. Dr. Tilly's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. My own theological stance can surely be characterized as progressive. Others would have less friendly characterizations like Capuchin Father Time Wynandy's publishing an article that asserted that one of my publications was guilty of, quote, doctrinal ambiguity and error, a view which I dispute, of course. That's Tom. My colleagues seem puzzled. How could Tilly fit at Franciscan University in a discussion focused on academic freedom and revealed truth? But what I would not fit is their idea of your mold here. We live in and live out a dynamic Catholic tradition. To do so, we must, as Cardinal Dulles, for whom my chair is named, did, hear and read each other's work carefully, interpret it charitably, report it accurately, argue thoughtfully, and disagree respectfully when we disagree, as we all serve God's truth. To do less than this with and for each other is to refuse to keep faith with that tradition as we struggle to incarnate it in the present. As part of this exploration, I want to offer you three reflections. First, how can we understand academic freedom? Second, how can we understand divine revel what did we do? Divine revelation. And third, the Catholic University. Whether or not you find these reflections persuasive, I hope that they will serve to stimulate your thinking and to advance the discussion of these vital topics. First, academic freedom. We tend to associate the concepts and practice of academic freedom in this country with the American Association of University Professors. The AAUP claims that institutions of higher education are conducted for the common good and not to further the interest of either the individual teacher or the institution as a whole. This common good depends upon the free search for truth and free, its free exposition. This principle articulated by the AAUP surely deserves our endorsement. Consideration of the common good has so severely diminished in public discourse in the United States that advocacy for the common good has become a distinguishing characteristic of specifically Catholic social thought. The search for truth is certainly a Catholic commitment. Uh, Father Sean's quoting from Ex Corde. Uh, reminds us of that. In the AAUP's 1970 comments on their key 1940 statement, they also note that members of the academic profession have, quote, responsibilities to institutions and students, among others. Linking rights and responsibilities, not merely asserting rights, is also characteristic of Catholic social thought. How could one object to such principles? Well, one might object, object to them by how they are fleshed out. First, the central AAUP principles apply only to teachers and researchers. Students are not subjects of academic freedom in the AAUP statement, a glaring omission. Second, while all in the academy, including those of us who work in explicitly denominational institutions, should be appreciative of the protections afforded by peer review and due process promoted by the AAUP, the notion of freedom inscribed in these documents is almost purely procedural. Is that notion of freedom sufficiently robust for Catholics to wholeheartedly support it? Third, the AAUP more recently has stated that, quote, a college or university is a marketplace of ideas. 
and it cannot fulfill its purpose of transmitting, evaluating, and extending knowledge if it requires conformity with any orthodoxy of content and methods." Close quotes. The image of a university as a market is rooted in the notion that the fittest ideas will survive in a free competition, a kind of intellectual Darwinism. Uh, but no marketplace is entirely free and stretching the survival of the fittest uh, to cover ideas is, I think, rather implausible. Can Catholics endorse such a consumerist notion of the search for truth valorized by the AAUP? And can some ideas, for example, hate speech, be precluded from academia as they can be and sometimes are terribly harmful in the time before they eventually wither in the face of fitter ideas. What this means, I think, is that the procedural notion of academic freedom is necessary for all colleges and universities to thrive, but not sufficient. Catholic colleges and universities cannot be institutions of higher learning without procedural safeguards such as those of the AEUP. Yet to serve the common good, there needs to be at least a minimal conception of what the common good is. Now, politically and socially, uh, we debate many constituents of what constitutes the common good. But serving the common good is more than offering a consumerist marketplace for ideas judged only by how many consumers buy them. Um, how can we figure out what that more is? Whatever it is, it will be substantial, not merely procedural. A step in that direction can be seen in the AAUP principles stating that academic freedom entitles the teacher, and I quote, to freedom in the classroom in discussing their subject but they should be careful not to introduce into their teaching controversial matter which has no relation to their subject. So if a faculty member abandons a subject, the concept of academic freedom cannot apply to that faculty member, certainly in the classroom, according to the AAUP, but I would argue in their research as well. The academic freedom to inquire and to decide among contested proposals presumes that the subject or realm of knowledge under inquiry exists. Far more claims made in the particular realm are not under inquiry in doing research. Just as sailors at sea cannot replace all of the parts of a ship all at once, but must depend and stand upon the whole to replace a single plank, so scholars presume a whole set of claims and values as they debate one particular aspect of that nexus in a discipline. For example, in evaluating claims about dark matter, physicists presume huge structures of theoretical physics. In exploring evolution, biologists must accept an overarching scheme in order to bring clarity to particular controverted issues or areas in the scheme. In debating the morality of contraception, Catholic theologians presume a huge structure of theology. In analyzing St. Augustine's attitudes toward women, historians presume a body of reliable text and much interpretive work. Neurath's boat. If some abandon the structure of physics, they abandon physics as a subject. If some abandon evolution, they abandon biology as a discipline. If some abandon the structure of theology, they abandon theology as a discipline. If some try to interpret Augustine with no reference to historical interpretation, they are abandoning history as a discipline. Academic freedom to explore and assert a particular claim 
requires taking for granted, presuming the, claim, the rest of the claims of the discipline. Academic freedom, then, is freedom to seek truth in pursuing a subject. But this freedom presumes the subject that is being pursued. If one abandons the subject, one abandons academic freedom associated with the subject one has abandoned. Within the subject, no formula, no issue is beyond question. But when questioning one issue or one formula, as in repairing one part of the ship, one must stand on the discipline as a whole as the sailor stands on the ship as a whole and take the whole for granted as one explores a particular. Without the subject as a whole, discipline, as I understand it, there is no academic freedom. Um, academic freedom is not freedom of speech. Those are two different things. The next step, then, is to see how academic freedom can serve the common good in a Catholic university. But to do that, we need to understand divine revelation. In this section, I'm going to offer four reflections on revelation. First, what is revelation? Fundamentally, it is God's self-manifestation. In his introduction to the English translation of the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation of the Second Vatican Council, Father R.A.F. Mackenzie of the Society of Jesus lays out elements of a doctrine of revelation. Revelation is a, quote, manifestation by God, primarily of himself, secondary of his will and intentions, close quote. That manifestation is a communication that is, a, quote, part of a larger pattern, destined ultimately for the good of all. This, close quote, this communication is public, not private, and, quote, has to be made known to others by the testimony of its recipient. Passed on orally, it becomes tradition. Recorded in writing, it becomes scripture. Hence, scripture and tradition contain revelation. But neither scripture nor tradition simply is divine revelation. Father Mackenzie sees that the relationship between divine revelation on the one hand and scripture and tradition on the other is not to be conceived as between a whole and its part, but as scripture and tradition in some way sacramentally bearing revelation. Avery Dulles defined revelation as, quote, the self-manifestation of God through a form of communication that could be termed, at least in a broad sense, symbolic. In his analysis of Vatican II's understanding of revelation, he noted that the council, quote, clearly taught that the Holy Spirit is active in continuing to communicate the revelation already given. Granted that God addresses the church through the scriptures and the sacraments, does God not speak also through creation and through secular history? Close quotes. Revelation is God's word, but not a communication narrowly limited to the formal structures, nor limited to the history or texts of Judaism of Christianity, and not fully contained in particular events and people of the past. Mackenzie's comments and Dulles's theological claims articulate a contemporary Orthodox Catholic view of revelation. Second, how can we understand revelation? And here Cardinal Dulles has much to offer. At this point, I can only touch on some of the fundamental issues. He rejected claims that revelation can be construed as the delivery of immutable divine propositions into the hands or ears of ancient writers. He called this objectivism. Or as the influence of a purely internal light or feeling or focal awareness on the part of individuals. He called that subjectivism. As he put it, God does not insert, quote, prefabricated propositions into the human mind, close quotes. Dulles also distinguishes virtual revelation from actual revelation. 
Virtual revelation is God's self-manifestation ontologically prior to its being accepted. Acceptance in faith makes virtual revelation actual. Without any acceptance, revelation is real, but only virtual and thus inaccessible. Dulles finds that revelatory symbols display human responses to the divine initiative, yet they are, quote, not pure creations of the human imagination. The basic symbols of Christian tradition are processes, events, and other realities whereby God brings into existence the community of faith we call the Christian church, close quotes. For Dulles, revelation, quote, is always mediated through symbol, close quotes, and produced in particular historical contexts. Symbols carry meaning. They get their meaning from a web of meanings, a semiotic system. They are housed in such a system and can get their meaning for in language from the sentences we use to express them in natural human languages. Anybody know what that thing is? What is it? Right. If you were Jesus, would you know what that is in the first century? Why not? You, because this has sense. This makes sense only in the context of automobile and truck traffic. This symbolizes green for go, um, amber for, well, <laughs> yeah, go faster, all right. Uh, it's like the red hand says, that blinks at you, says walk faster, right? Uh, and red, of course, symbolizes stop. Now, this is a very simple, trashy little symbol. But notice the point. It has and can have meaning only in the context of a whole pattern of things that we call traffic. Events, texts, people, or things may be virtually, potentially, revelatory, but there's no way to identify or recognize them except in the response of faith as symbols, which transforms them into actual evaluation, revelation. Questions about which symbols we should use to express faith effectively are dealt with in the discipline of theology, the discipline St. Anselm called faith-seeking understanding. Dulles recognizes that the symbols we use to express and understand divine revelation are, quote, given in a specific history, close quotes, and mediated through scripture, quote, read in the light of living and ongoing tradition, close quotes. God's self-manifestation through and in symbolic communication, quote, has cognitive value that can be expressed to some extent in true propositions, close quote. However, as symbols get their meaning from the semiotic systems that house them, the meaning systems that house them, so propositions get their meaning from the, from the sentences we use to express them in natural human languages. If propositions exist, and there is some debate about that among philosophers, they can only be expressed in human languages. Human languages are not immutable. The meaning of sentences can and does shift as language shifts. Historical theologians, for example, generally accept that the meaning of person in contemporary English is different from the meaning of prosopon in ancient Greek or even persona in ancient Latin. So, the, that there are two natures in one person, Jesus Christ, in contemporary English may not convey exactly what the ancient creeds did. 
Theologians explore whether sentences that do not share cognate terms like person and persona may better express Christological doctrine today. Do we need a two-natures Christology, a two-narratives Christology, a descending-ascending Christology? All these proposals are not intended to say Nicaea and Chalcedon were wrong. They're trying to say, what can we communicate today what they communicated then? And that's up for debate. Why? Because languages change meaning. Third, it is clear for Dulles that revelation is not an epistemic foundation for faith, independent of faith. Revelation, in Dulles's view, cannot function as a source or norm of faith, independent of the responses of faith. Actual revelation is not prior to faith, but is the correlate of faith. Because virtual revelation is inaccessible to us, revelation per se cannot, cannot function as a foundation for Christian faith and practice, but as the correlate of faith within a tradition of the practice of the faith. Thus, we cannot directly examine God's virtual revelation. We cannot use virtual revelation to warrant our claims. We can only use actual revelation, the correlate of faith, and examine revelatory symbols that express divine revelation in the concrete. It is important to note that the question is not whether God reveals. Catholic theology as a discipline, as a subject, presumes that, uh, just as geology presumes the reality of rocks. It is not up for question. Rather, theologians must ask, which responses to God serve well to communicate and to express God's self-manifestation for us? Fourth, if Dulles is a kind of revelation as historically contextualized symbolic mediation is an adequate account of revelation as promulgated by Vatican II on revelation, what follows? Three implications seem to me important in this area. First, the exploration of the symbols and sentences that express the truth that God has revealed is a work proper to theologians. Theological disciplines explore how to communicate what God is revealing. Theologians can properly dispute about how God's act in self, acts in self-manifestation and whether particular human responses are or remain revelatory. Disputes about particular claims which merit academic freedom in the overarching discipline of Catholic theology. As in other disciplines, theology has academic freedom within a discipline. Second, such explorations require that theologians make uh, some distinctions. We need to distinguish what makes a claim true, what makes a claim reliable, and how we appraise claims. Non-theologians tend to, and non-philosophers tend to collapse these three things. You can't. What makes a revelatory symbol true is that it expresses the self-manifestation of God. That's what makes it true. What makes a symbolic expression reliable is that it is produced and received as properly expressing God's self-revelation in and for the community of faith. But there are disputes about that reliability, about the best symbols to use. For example, the dispute about the symbols homoousios and homoousios before the Council of Nicaea in 325. Both Arians and Athanasians claimed their favorite was reliably produced. But the council appraised homoousios, one in being, 
not homoi usios, similar in being, as the proper symbol for speaking of the son's relationship with the father, an authoritative appraisal that was not universally accepted. Still isn't. But once we recognize that what constitutes revelation differs from how symbols can be reliably produced, we still need to appraise those symbols or sentences in the context of mutable human language. We can see that debates about the formulations of revelation in doctrinal proposals and counterproposals, like those of the Arians and the Athanasians, are proper subjects of truly free and faithful academic inquiry in Catholic theology. Third, as in other investigations noted in my discussion of academic freedom earlier, inquiring about whether a particular symbol, sentence, or proposal reflects God's revelation presumes the reliability of the rest of the body of proposals, symbols, actions, or sentences that are not under examination and that constitute the faith as a whole. One can question whether God reveals only if one steps out of the bark of theology and swims over to the ship of philosophy. One can, in theology, investigate any particular symbol or sentence for its adequacy to communicate how God reveals. How, where, when, response, not whether. I would take this as implied by Dulles when he wrote that, quote, revelation, rather than being presupposed as fully known from the start, is progressively elucidated as theology carries out its task, end quote. Theologians then are not faithful to the past by repeating past formulas. Fidelity to our whole tradition may require new particular forms in the present, for neither the cultural context nor the meanings of our sentences today are sure to be identical to those in the past. Faithful theologians, quay theologians, doing their work, do not dispute that God reveals, but may propose new symbols and sentences that express that revelation. And to serve the common good of the church, theologians whose job is to understand the faith require academic freedom even when theologians argue for significant and perhaps startling changes in one or two planks of the vessel of faith, while they necessarily presume the faith as a whole. What about the Catholic University in light of all this then? Well, if my earlier comments regarding academic freedom are accurate, then a Catholic university cannot simply be a marketplace of ideas, nor a closed circle that admits only those who are in, quote, in conformity with an orthodoxy of contents and methods, close quotes from the AAUP. As I was preparing this, I discovered this cartoon from the New Yorker. I love it. In the marketplace of ideas, we may not have the best ideas, but we have the best marketing. There's the problem in a nutshell. Close circle? Think the problem is obvious. The former neglects the necessary commitment of scholars to substantial components of disciplines necessary for true academic freedom and espouses a procedural account of freedom. Marketplace won't do. The latter fails to allow for the necessary freedom of exploration required for properly doing any form of academic investigation, especially a theological one. So what is left for a Catholic university? Here our reflection on Cardinal Dulles's account of revelation and the work of theologians and a conversation between Archbishop Daniel Palarczyk, co-chair of the Bishop's Subcommittee on Mandatum and the Religious Studies Department of the University of Dayton over a decade ago when I was chair of that department provide a template for answering this question. The conversation 
established that basic competency requires Catholic theologians and others to, rep to present Catholic teaching as Catholic teaching, that is, to inform the students about what the church does teach. Catholic theologians should also present arguments for that position. Archbishop Polarczyk also agreed that Catholic theologians may present other positions and the arguments for them that are not in accord with magisterial teaching. Catholic theologians may even indicate that they accept positions at odds with magisterial teaching on particular issues on the basis of better arguments. But Catholic theologians cannot, and I would add, nor could any other faculty, advocate that the students accept the professor's position as the student's own, rather than the, than the position of the official ecclesial magisterium, or should reject the whole ship of faith because one plank in it is in dispute. In other words, the student must have the freedom to take her or his own position based on a judgment informed by fair and balanced presentation of the discipline and of current arguments and positions. If this is correct, and I think basically it is, I would claim that this pattern can apply throughout the university. The student has the freedom to accept or reject various positions. That freedom is positive and negative. It is positive in that students must be enabled to understand the discipline and that there are various ideas and arguments for and against particular proposals within the discipline. They must be supported in their own search for truth regarding particular issues, and they should be shown the likely implications of accepting particular proposals in theory and in practice. It is negative, that is freedom from coercion, in that the students must be free from being intimidated or told what to believe, whether in theology or physics. Uh, given the variety of Roman Catholic colleges and universities around the country and around the world, a one-size-fits-all approach seems unwarranted. However, the application of ex corde to the United States articulates a helpful general principle for maintaining the Catholic identity of the Catholic university. And I quote, at length. The responsibility for safeguarding and strengthening the Catholic identity of the university rests primarily with the university itself. All the members of the university community are called to participate in this important task in accordance with their specific roles. You already heard this. The sponsoring religious community, the board of trustees, the administration and staff, the faculty, and the students. Men and women of religious faith other than Catholic on the board of trustees, on the faculty, and in other positions can make a valuable contribution to the university. Their presence affords the opportunity for all to learn and benefit from each other. The university should welcome them as full partners in the campus community." Close quote. How can our universities put this principle into practice? My friend and sometimes colleague, Father James L. Heft, Marianist, director of the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies, now housed at the University of Southern California, has spoken frequently. Well, I'm a slide behind. Oh, yeah, we, that's the stuff I just talked about, right? Responsibility law. I, I, when Father Sean read that, I really liked that, since I was quoting it, too has used the concept of an open circle. People of all faiths and of no faith from every relevant discipline are invited into the open circle of the Catholic University. The circle presumes, not without discussion, debate, criticism, and even disagreement, that an open and broad tradition, which I've called the, others have called the Catholic intellectual tradition, centers the circle 
however diverse the positions that members take may be. The open circle is a polyphony of diverse voices, always in danger of becoming a cacophony as found in the laissez-faire marketplace of ideas or a monotony of repetitive orthodox statements. Centering on, actually, I like that circle better than Jim's, but we, I tease him about that, and uh, he teases me right back. Centering on the Catholic intellectual tradition may ameliorate those possibilities of the marketplace or the monotony. The Catholic intellectual tradition accepts some fundamental principles, such as those articulated in ex corde, paragraph 15. It includes the search for an integration of knowledge, a dialogue between faith and reason, an ethical concern, and a theological perspective. Not every member of the university community need accept these principles but should acknowledge that such principles center the circle as a whole. Each one contributes in her or his own distinctive way as faculty, as students, and administrators to the work of the whole. Even if those principles do not center her or his teaching or research or administration directly. To discuss the full ramifications of this view would take far more time than we have here, but one is clear. A Catholic university as an open circle has a place for the discipline of theology and for practitioners of that discipline to have unfettered academic freedom as they work in teaching and research in the discipline because our common good in the university is centered in understanding God's creation and God's self-manifestation. There are many versions of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Chapter five of that book offers one of them. This is not a simple concept, but it does suggest that there is something that can center the circle that is the university. Heft also argues that it's more important that the university hire not merely uh, Catholics with doctorates who can teach, but Catholic scholars. What are Catholic scholars? Father Heft described them in the following way, long quote. Catholic scholars, indeed religious scholars, approach their disciplines with certain presuppositions that the more deeply one gets into what it means to be human, the more inescapable are religious questions that the more deeply one gets into any area of scholarship, the more likely one finds it necessary to make connections with other areas of knowledge. <coughs> that the more intellectually vibrant a religious tradition is, the more it will learn from and influence the larger culture in which it is located. And that the incarnation for Christian scholars is a theological focal point for all these suppositions a point I strongly agree with Father Heft in, in my own discussion of the Catholic intellectual tradition. If I think Father Heft is correct, and mostly I think he is, then hiring for mission is crucial for a Catholic university. Hiring for mission requires articulating a college's or university's distinctive mission, not merely its brand, and our various institutions will have and should have a variety of missions. In general, however, a key is hiring and developing faculty and staff who are willing to join this open circle by being, at minimum, somewhat sympathetic to the college's or university's mission, including the commitments appropriate to the Catholic intellectual tradition. If my reflections are on track then, there is or should be a harmony between the practices of academic freedom and the exploration of God's self-revelation in a Catholic university that has a place for theology and valorizes the Catholic intellectual tradition. 
How this harmony is to be orchestrated will vary, of course, depending upon the distinctive missions of the institutions. Of various, yes, of various Catholic colleges, our various Catholic colleges and universities also form an open circle of diversity. Circles within circles, open. But a circle of conviction, conviction of what you say, the answer can be found in Ex Cordiae Ecclesiae, section 17, which quotes from Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world from Vatican II, section 36. Here's what the Second Vatican Council said on this matter. If methodological investigation within every branch of learning is carried out in a genuinely scientific manner and in accord with moral norms, it never truly conflicts with faith. For earthly matters and the concerns of faith derive from the same God. Indeed, whoever labors to penetrate the secrets of reality with a humble and steady mind is, even unawares, being led by the hand of God who holds all things in existence and gives them their identity. Close quote. However rocky and difficult the proximate work may be, the conviction that unites us is that God has created a diversely awesome universe, including quarks, mosquitoes, dolphins, human societies, and that God calls us to many diverse ways to understand its graced beauty. This commitment grounds our hope that ultimately whatever cacophony of discord appears in our shared work now will resolve into an amazing, almost unbearable chorus of polyphonic hymnody. This commitment to understanding God's creation and self-manifestation shows the necessity of freedom to explore and perhaps even dispute over the symbols and sentences that express the revealed truth of God's self-manifestation. This commitment grounds the academic freedom in a Catholic college or university, or at least I think it does, for this commitment articulates what I see as our common good, to glorify God in our shared work, a God who manifests God's infinite goodness in all of creation, and all of that good creation is open to our exploration in a Catholic university. Thank you for inviting me to raise my voice in this discussion today in the circle that we have gathered here at Franciscan University. I want first to thank Dr. Tilly for his stimulating paper and for his opening gracious remarks. He is surely right that no one benefits when Catholic theologians of differing perspectives ignore each other and fail to engage each other. And we do not need to fit each other's mold, to borrow his words, in order to have a thoughtful and charitable conversation. It is with a view toward such a conversation that I will make a few points. I begin by reinforcing in my own way some very important points that Dr. Tilly has made. First, he highlighted two aspects of academic freedom. On the one hand, there is what he calls procedural freedom. This is simply freedom from constraint, the ability to seek truth without hindrance. On the other hand, such freedom, Dr. Tilly rightly says, must be balanced by one's commitment to one's discipline. I would like to further this point by describing it in terms of the classic distinction between free choice and freedom. I realize that these words are plastic, but what I mean by them, I trust, will be clear. Free choice, I take, is the lack of constraint, the absence of coercion, the ability to choose this rather than that. Freedom, on the other hand, is the ability to enjoy a good. Often, an increase in freedom means a decrease in free choice. Let me illustrate with a simple example. If I would like the freedom to enjoy the good of playing in an orchestra 
producing beautiful music, I must surrender my choice to the conductor. I lose the choice to play what I wish, when I wish, how I wish, and so on. But in surrendering this choice, I get to enjoy a new, higher, communal good that I could not, that I am not free to enjoy by myself. We see the same trade-off, to give two other examples, in marriage and religious life. I won't enumerate the ways in which free choice is sacrificed in marriage. We would be here all night. (laughs) I'm sure it's the same for the religious life. One makes a choice to surrender. One makes a choice to surrender some choices in order to be free to enjoy the wonderful communal goods of marriage and religious life. To bring us back to theology, I want to give one final example, an example that Dr. Tilly also offers. If I wish to enjoy the good of doing theology, I must accept revelation. I must surrender the choice to entertain lines of thought that deny revelation. I cannot keep the choice to deny revelation and do theology any more than I can keep the choice to date women and get married. All this does not mean that doing theology at university is a simple business. We can all take for granted that free inquiry must be constrained in some respects. Not constrained in order to be ruined, but rather to be ordered to the realization of higher goods and truths. And most would accept, without too much fuss, the constraint that revelation places on us, thus making theology possible. A number of pressing questions, however, immediately arise. Which teachings are revealed truths and which are not? In a footnote, um, Dr. Tilly lamented the loss of theological notes, and I, I shared that lament Uh, with him. Is one constrained not only by revealed truths, but also by the language in which they have been expressed in the past? To offer a second pressing question. And finally, who decides these questions? Theologians? The Pope? Bishops? Dr. Tilly is certainly right to make the language in which truths are expressed a secondary matter. One might think of Aquinas' teaching, surely correct, it's Aquinas, that the act of faith terminates in God, not in propositions. Or again, to offer a very different example, one might think of the joint declaration between Pope Paul VI and the Pope of Alexandria, Shenouda III, the head of the Oriental Orthodox Church, wherein they confess the same faith in Christ without resorting to the controverted language of nature. Of course, Paul VI wants to say two natures. Shenouda III wants to say one nature. They disagree on the word, but yet uh, set that disagreement aside and confess a common faith in Christ. This is a wonderful reminder that we can confess the same faith in different words. Truths are primary, words secondary. For my last point, I'd like to mention Dr. Tilly's example of a dispute about words or symbols, if we use Cardinal Dulles' language. He mentioned the fourth century dispute over which symbol, which word, best expresses the truth of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Here we basically have two claims. One that posits, as Dr. Tilly said, homoousios, consubstantial or one in being, as the best word for expressing the relationship between the Father and the Son. And one that posits homoousios, again, as Dr. Tilly said, similar in being or like in being. For Dr. Tilly, it seems to belong to theologians 
to appraise the truth and reliability of these claims. As he says, debates, quote, debates about the formulations of revelation in doctrinal proposals and counterproposals are proper subjects of truly free and faithful academic inquiry in Catholic theology. I would point out, though, that the appraisal of the truth and reliability of homoousios and homoousios was carried out by a council of bishops and not a panel of theologians. Thus, I come to my main question for Dr. Tilly. And a question uh, not that I think I have all answered myself. What is the role of the bishops in all of this? Is there a place for the magisterium? I would not deny the important, nay indispensable role that theologians play in appraising the truth and reliability of truth claims, including claims that something or other is a revealed truth. Moreover, I would readily admit that the relationship between theologians and bishops is complex and sometimes difficult and the difficulty can lie largely at the feet of one party or the other. All that being said, again, what role do bishops have in appraising the truth and reliability of truth claims? If I may, I would add one final comment that ties these last questions in with our theme of free choice and freedom. As I mentioned earlier, I think Dr. Tilly is spot on when he posits that academic freedom means something more than free inquiry. That academic freedom entails a commitment and thus a surrender of choice that in turn frees us for the pursuit of a higher good. I think the bishops throughout the ages have in fact asked all Christians and that bishops themselves as Christians there have been some who weren't, but that bishops themselves as Christians have likewise been asked to commit themselves to revelation so that believing they may understand. One way then to focus my last question is this. Do bishops have the ability to ask us to commit ourselves to certain truths? I want to thank again Dr. Tilly for coming to Franciscan for a thoughtful and probing paper and I look forward to our engaging conversation. Thank you so much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.